here we are now. With chapter number 13 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And this chapter is titled Estrella. And this is the story of Treya completing her circle or her rebirth into her new name. So we're talking about names in this episode. Now, in our plot, Treya has just found out that she's had a recurrence. And even as she finds this out, she says, look, honey, right here to Ken. And sure enough, there's a small rock-hard bump under her right arm. And she very calmly just says, it's probably cancer, you know. And he says, well, I suppose so. And what else could it be? And much worse, a recurrence at this point means that it's very serious. It would mean a very high chance of some gruesome metastasis to the bone or the brain or the lungs. And they both know it. And they quickly get it removed the next day. And Ken is quite amazed throughout this moment and throughout the next day and throughout the next following week and even over the coming month at Treya's reaction. Because her reaction is of no alarm, no fear, not even tears, not once. And crying was always a giveaway for Treya, he says. If something was wrong, her tears would tell. But this time, there's no tears. And it wasn't that she was simply resigned or defeated, or in a sort of cold depression which is quiet. No, she actually seems to be genuinely at peace with herself and the situation. And Ken says, well, he probably wouldn't have believed this had he not seen it for himself in person, carefully, closely, over a long period of time. So he's there relating to her. They're married. They're a love couple. They're lovebirds. He's very in tune with how she's feeling and thinking and what's going on for her. And yet she sees, he sees no alarm in her, no fear and no anger. So Treya has definitely changed over the last three years. So at this point in our story, Ken and Treya have been together for three years. Can you believe it? Seems like longer, doesn't it? It seems like so much has happened. Seems like they've been together for a lifetime already. <laughs> After all they've been through. 
And that's what happens when you're in a hyper-intensified relationship where circumstances ramp up your alertness to extreme degrees. It's fast living in a very literal sense. In cancer, uh, it, it is really gruesome. And at this stage, well, she is not ignorant of this. Treya has not only had her own experiences, of course, but she's also read about some of the really terrible treatments and conditions in books like, which she mentions, A Moral Condition. Sorry, A Mortal Condition. So the name of the book is A Mortal Condition. And the other one that she mentions is Life and Death on 10 West. And they're enough to sort of send anyone into horror about cancer, she says. But for her, they're still sort of pale. They don't have the same sort of bite to it. And some of her friends, Ken says, and Ken says he's sort of in this boat as well, they start to worry that maybe Treya has indeed, to some degree, been caught in denial. I mean, she's so calm and so joyous, so open and accepting. There must be some sort of denial going on. But Ken realises, as time unfolds, and as he keeps relating to her, that simply thinking that she's in denial is simply a way to underestimate Treya. And Treya says, well, she's actually full of joy. She's full of a deep equanimity. And she starts to actually become grateful for the recurrence because she never would have known that this shift would, had of ta- had, has taken place. Her internal shift wouldn't have, sorry, how do I say this? Let's get the words right. She never would have known about the internal shift within her had the, in, the reoccurrence not taken place. So when she says that she's grateful for the reoccurrence, she means it. Something wonderful has happened. A great load of fear has, that she's been carrying around has left her. It's like that big boulder that she's been carrying heavy and large and up the hill. Well, that's, that's gone now. And she knows it's gone for good because the same circumstances are coming along and she hasn't got it. And it's not to say she's not without small little things. She describes these as little pebbles that she picks up along the way. But she knows how to put them back down where they belong. So she looks at her options with Ken. And essentially at this stage, radiation is the only treatment that the white man medicine prescribes. And she immediately rejects this. She says, that's not for me. And this begins the long trip into the crazy world of alternative cancer cures. And this is a wild ride that they get onto. (laughs) There are some very wacky characters in this world. 
And first up, well, they start sort of going around to different institutions and doing a bit of research and finding out some different things and meeting some people. So they're a bit on a, on a bit of a tour, on a bit of a holiday, Ken and Treya. And they come across this one healer called Chris Habib. And Ken describes her as, well, wild, fabulous, insane, lovable, sometimes effective, whacked out, psychic healer. And he says, well, meeting her is Chris Habib, his psychic healer, has played a crucial role in the completion for Treya to transform into Treya. And the secret ingredient, the secret thing that comes across is humor. It's a sense of lightness, a sense of poking fun at yourself. And that's something that this psychic healer does. So how can you choose a psychic healer over radiation? How weird. Would you ever do that? Would you ever turn your back on mainstream medicine in this sort of situation? And yet Treya, well, she feels like it's a fully healthy and life-affirming decision. She's made it in full awareness of the options and the alternatives. And it's sort of funny because if it, if it was the other way around, it would be like, I mean, I mean, look at look at what radiation therapy is. You say, okay, here's what it does, and it might work or it might not work. And then you say, okay, well, now I have to choose if I want radiation or not. And then you go to the alternative healer, and well, what do they say? They say, here's what it does, and it might work or it might not work. So essentially, they're on the same playing field. They're on the same level in some ways. Now, whether you believe they do what they do or not, well, that's another question. And that's sort of half the trip with Ken and Treya. But she goes to this psychic healer and, well, what does she do? Well, she basically lays on a table and the psychic healer moves her hands around her and she'll be feeling for energy things within the body, energy meridians or chakras or energy movements or whatever whatever the terms are. And the psychic healer is just moving their arm, hands around and trying to sense things, sensing for cold, sensing for sensations, asking the patient, asking Treya for feedback or for what's happening. And she's doing this with Treya and she goes over a certain part and she says, oh, something's going on in your pancreas. And then Treya says, oh, I forgot to tell you, I have diabetes. So that's a condition of the pancreas. And it's like, well, hmm, huh, interesting. Treya didn't tell her that she had a condition with her pancreas. And yet this psychic healer was just, by putting her hands on her, able to pick up something. Interesting. And then there's the other side of this psychic healer, which is the personality. Because as Treya is getting these sessions and having this energy healing, the psychic 
Chris Habib is telling stories. And it comes out that there's some pretty wild stories. For example, she herself had cancer when she was 23. She had a lump in her breast that had spread for years. And that's where she had begun this work. And she'd even studied biochemistry in Italy. But for some in there, there was this problem where she actually healed a child with leukemia. And she got in trouble for her methods. Can you imagine that, she says? It's a, it's a crime. It was a crime for her to heal this child with leukemia. And the biochemist that he was studying, she was studying with was into unusual approaches. And he sort of helped her come into her talents as a psychic. But because of the culture and because of the place, well, they weren't quite accepted. And then there's also this other story, which is she met this man who came in for treatment and he'd had 17 abortions with 17 different women and he was really rich and really good looking and he'd actually had this way of learning how to heal himself with this psychic healer. And the other side of her story is, well, she's had cancer actually not once but seven times. And not only this, but she's had three heart attacks. And two of those times, she was pronounced terminal. She was pronounced dead. That sort of just puts things into perspective, doesn't it? Whoa. Who are we dealing with here? And as she keeps getting sessions, well, all these sorts of stories come out. And where's Ken during all this? Well, Ken stays away. He doesn't come to the sessions because... He is quite sceptical. He's quite much against, well, not not really against the process, but he, he questions what they say about what they do, not what they do. And that's an important distinction because it's like, it's like for him, he can see that the energy that she's working with fits into the levels of consciousness that we've been talking about in the previous chapter, which he was explaining to Edith. So it's like a fulcrum three phantasmic emotional body connecting with the physical body. It's a very low-ranging energy. And he can understand that, but of course, this is not how the psychic talks about it. And he has this way of just disagreeing or sort of arcing up and sort of saying, no, that's not what's happening whenever this psychic tries to explain something. So Ken stays away. And the lesson for Ken is that he needs to support Treya and he needs to know when to apply his skepticism. And this is a tough lesson for him. This is one of his lessons that he says, He's learning the hard way. And the best way to do this is to be clear about what process you're in and what sort of support you need. And when you're in the process or you're in the phase of deciding which treatment to go with, then that's when you use your skepticism. That's when you voice your concern. 
That's when you say all that you want to say against or for any of the treatments. But then, once the decision is made, you close your mouth and you support your partner, you support who you're caring for, no matter what you think. And it would even be better to go one step further and to make this explicit. To actually make that a clear understanding between you and your partner. So you would say to your partner, okay, we've got these options and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about all of them, even if I strongly disagree with them, while you're making the decision. Then once you've made the decision, I'm going to support you no matter what I think. And if that's understood from the very start, then you can get through this a lot more smoothly. And in the case of Treya and Ken, well, they have a bit of a back and forth. Because Treya is getting these sessions and Ken keeps being skeptical. She sort of needs to say, look, just support me. Just go along with it. And then, well, after a few sessions, Ken decides to go along and he finds this psychic to be actually very likable. He just wanted to hang out with her and sort of catch up in her magical stories. And she, he came to see that that's actually a crucial part of whatever it was that she was doing. It doesn't mean that he believed in her tales, not literally. It was more just that she had a certain charm. And that's something, well, that's something that is worth something. Because it can really shape your perspective for your own cancer and your own sicknesses. And there's one story she tells where this little girl with leukemia came in and the parents had tried everything. They tried all sorts of things. And she was on this really strict diet with all these pills and all these vitamins and all these things like this. And this psychic just said, I know what you need. You need to stop all of what you're doing. Go out and buy this girl a big, fat, greasy burger from McDonald's. And the little girl just smiled and jumped up and down and started being very happy all over the place. So you can say, well, is that what cured the cancer? It's just a big, greasy, dirty burger. Is that what the psychic did? And that's what the skeptical voice would say. And that's what Ken would say. But on the other side, you'd say, well, that's quite a beautiful moment to have. That's quite a beautiful thing to give to a child who's been through hell. A, ca- a, a child that has been facing cancer. Is there anything more hellish than that? Is there anything more dark than that? And yet, the psychic was able to light up her world, to instill hope, and to at least just for a moment to remind that child of joy. So Ken is having a session and she's putting her hands over his body. 
And she goes, oh, well, and it's sort of like there's nothing nothing wrong there. You know, there's no coldness. Energy is flowing pretty, pretty smooth. And then he goes up to his head. And she explains that, well, each side of the head has 10 channels to it. And most people have their channels open to about level three or four. They have about three or four levels open in their head. And when she's reading Ken's energy or doing her psychic thing on his head, she goes, wow, you've got 10 on one side and seven on the other. And then she tries to do this thing and, well, she opens up the last three. She's sort of working with him and saying, oh, I can actually open up three so you can get 10 on both sides. And she does this and she explains that, well, someone with 10 on both sides only comes along every 2,000 years. And the last person who did it, who had it, was the Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Oh, and by the way, she says that she's also got 10 open on both sides. And of course, Ken just cracks up. He just bursts out laughing at this. He just thinks, I cannot take any of this. So you're telling me that there's two people in this room with 10 open channels in their brains and they're not supposed to come along more than once every 2,000 years. And he is just cracking himself. He's just laughing. And then later, well, I sort of leave this session and Treya sort of asks Ken, oh, so what, what were you really thinking? Why did you burst out laughing? And he just sort of thought, well, I don't know. I just had to laugh. And then the other part of this session was that she'd asked him, do you, do you smell any funny smells? And he said, yes, this is when she, she was working on his brain, on his head. And he says to Treya in the car, well, actually, he'd been smelling weird smells long before she'd even asked him. So it was definitely effect an effect. And he also says that he could definitely feel the energies moving in his body. So he says that he understands that they're doing what, they are doing something, but they, what they say about it is not accurate. So he believes in what they're doing, but he doesn't believe in their interpretations. And that's a nuanced difference. And the overall net benefit was, well, Treya and Ken go away from these sessions feeling vitalized, alert, and happy, and having heard a whole bunch of crazy stories about all these patients that she's had, and also about herself, and, well, they're just outrageous tales. It's a sense of humor. And then, well, they keep driving back from their holiday, back to their place, and they start to talk about this book by the psychoanalyst Frederick Levinson. And he's written this book called The Causes and Prevention of Cancer. And essentially, his theory is that people are more prone to cancer if, as adults, they have a hard time bonding with other people. So this applies to people who are tending to be hyper-individualistic, 
over self-contained and never asking for help. And Trey is talking about this book with Ken as they drive along and she's saying, well, this really resonates with me. She's always been saying things like, oh, no thanks, I can handle it, I can do it on my own. And that's a sort of general attitude which she's had, which all comes down to the fear of being needy. It's the fear of being turned down if she shows how much she needs someone. And Levinson's point is, well, the precancerous individual lacking emotional entropy will be unable to fuse with anyone else as a means of dissipating irritation. He or she most likely will be able to experience intimacy only when he or she is caring for someone else. To be loved and cared for, however, results in emotional discomfort and uneasiness that is easily detected. And Treya says, well, you were the first person that I've ever been able to fuse with. And it's funny that, well, Ken was the carer for Treya, and that caused a whole lot of emotional problems for them. It's exactly what Levinson is talking about. And so Treya identifies this as one of her key issues, or her big issue, which is not being able to let love in, not allowing someone to care for you. And she turns to Ken and she says, well, what's your big issue? Where do you stand on this? What's your idea? And he thinks, well, it's the same sort of problem underlying him, which is the fear of rejection. But it's, it's a fear which is very different. So fear is the underlying to both of them, but the fear of rejection is a different way in which that fear manifests itself. It's sort of in the opposite way, where Treya will close down and become too inner-directed, he becomes up and too much outer-directed. So he's driven by anxiety to please and perform. And he talks about all the achievements that he's done, being top of the class, captain of the football team, writing the best books. This is overachievement, massively overachievement driven by, well, a anxiety of thinking that there will be someone that doesn't love him. He just wants everyone to love him. And this is also tied in with his daemon, his calling, which is to write books. Because when he doesn't honor that calling and he blames it on someone else, well, then you get a whole bunch of different pathologies. And they're at many levels. Because fear and anxiety is a fulcrum three. That's the phantasmic emotional body level. And yet his daemon, his calling, is a fulcrum seven or fulcrum eight pathology. That's of the soul. It's his spirit and his soul is his calling. So when he neglects it, there's no filter down. 
There's no coming down from above, which basic, basically is just a big mess. It's just a huge mess full of pathologies that are interacting and conflicting with each other all across the spectrum. And he realizes this because this is what happened when they were in the Tahoe house. This is what happened when she was on chemotherapy. And Ken says, well, God, I'm really sorry I blamed you for all that shit. Andrea says, that's okay. We both have a lot to forgive. And that was the first time that Ken had admitted in a free and open way that he had blamed her for so much of his own woes. Although they both had known it for quite some time, So it wasn't a lingering issue, it was a resolved issue. But it was good to clear the air. It was good to really lay to rest and really just to look back and really see exactly what went wrong and to acknowledge it and to integrate it and to really learn the lesson. So they're not afraid to actually really clearly define their issues even though they've long passed and that is a real maturity and they get home back to their house in San Francisco so this chapter ends with a letter from Treya to all her friends And I'd like to read just about all of it. It's not very long, but it will serve as a good illustration of where we're at in her story, where she is in her interior world, and also the meaning of her new name. So up until this point in the plot, she's been called Terry. And she changes her name to Treya. And once I've read it, I might also share some things about the significance of a name and some of my own thoughts. So, allow me to read to you from Grace and Grit, chapter 13. And this is the letter from Treya to her friends. November 25th, 1986. Hello, friends. November 16 was my 40th birthday, and on that day I changed my name to Treya. Henceforth, I will no longer be known as Terry Killam or Terry Killam Wilbur, but as Treya Wilbur or Treya Killam Wilbur. Seven years ago, while I was living at the Findhorn community in Scotland, I had a dream one of those very clear ones that somehow felt significant. I dreamt that my name should be Estrella, which is Spanish for star. When I woke and thought about it, I felt the name should be shortened to Treya. Most people wouldn't know that double L in Spanish is pronounced Y-E anyway. But I never got round to it. I'd always been suspicious of people who changed their names anyway, and judgmental of people who chose names like Diamond 
and angel ecstasy. At that time, I would have been embarrassed to change my name. My own judgment blocked me from following that dream. Or perhaps it just wasn't time yet. Perhaps I needed seven years to grow into that name. Without a doubt, these last years have been the most dramatic and challenging years of my life, especially the last three. Beginning with meeting Ken Wilbur, marrying him four months later, and ten days after our wedding discovering I had breast cancer. Surgery and radiation, a recurrence eight eight months later, more surgery, six months of chemotherapy and baldness, Eight months later, diabetes, and, just this June, another recurrence. My reaction to the most recent recurrence surprised me. With the two preceding bouts with cancer, my predominant response was fear. But this time I felt quite calm. There was some fear, of course. After all, this time I am certainly not naive about cancer. But the degree of calmness and matter-of-factness I felt showed me that my relationship to this disease had changed profoundly. If I had not had the reoccurrence, I would never have fully recognized this inner shift. One evening soon after receiving the biopsy results, I wrote in my journal about this reoccurrence, letting thoughts spill out about what this meant to me and how it felt in a stream-of-consciousness way. Without realising where I was heading, I found myself writing about the new balance I felt between my masculine and feminine sides, and how I felt I could now stop trying to be my father's eldest son. I found found myself saying, Treya, my name should be Treya now. Terry is a masculine, independent, no-nonsense kind of name, no frills, very straightforward. The way I've always tried to be. Treya is softer, more feminine, kinder, more subtle, with a bit of mystery to it, a person I feel I'm becoming, more myself. But I waffled about the name, how silly to change one's name. Yes, that would have been Terry's attitude. What nonsense. But Treya... Treya would understand. Treya would encourage and support the change. I had two more dreams last summer, and one with the reoccurrence, each with the flavour of, come on now, stop messing around, it's time to change your name. Your name is Treya. Then last month, Ken and I did a four-day Kala Chakra empowerment with Kalu Ringpoche. On Saturday night, everyone is supposed to sleep on pieces of cushy grass. And that night, I dreamt that Ken and I were looking for a place to live. The sense was, this was about coming home. At a house by the ocean, I saw a big black fountain pen lying on the ground, and I picked it up. I wanted to see how it felt to write with it, so I took the top off and wrote, as clear as day, Treya. And so I decided to change my name on my 40th birthday. Not only that, my 40th birthday was a full moon, very goddess-like. 
Other ways I've changed besides my name? I'm less critical of others. I don't hold them to the standards of conventional or doing success. I have a good friend who is a weaver. Her husband is a political activist. I no longer think her work is unimportant compared to his. I'm not only more tolerant, but genuinely interested in the various ways people choose to shape their lives. And a quick judgment isn't waiting in the wings, ready to pop up on stage at any time. I see all of life as more of a game, not quite so totally loaded with importance. It's more fun, easier. I hold life more lightly. I trust myself more. I'm kinder to myself. I believe there is a wisdom guiding my life and that my life doesn't have to look like anyone else's to feel good and fulfilling and yes, even successful. And it does feel amazing that all these changes are coming together, snowballing, gaining momentum, becoming really integrated on this, my birthday, in so many ways. I am in some sense being reborn shedding my past and moving into a future that is really mine, not shackled and conditioned so heavily by my past, rather guided and strengthened by my past with a direction that is truly my own. So, with congratulations to all of you who have also changed your names, my name is now Treya Killam Wilbur. Love, Treya. There are many reasons why people change their names. And actually, I spoke about this in a previous episode. That episode was titled, My Name is Dosta. And here's what happened. So, I am, in a sense, in the same boat as Treya, because I have also changed my name for very different reasons and in a very different way. But essentially, well, it's about being born again. It's about choosing where you draw the lines and Open the lines within yourself. It's about recognizing when you've made a big shift in your internal world. And you've seen them come out in different ways in the external world, which Treya has. And in my case, well, I don't want to say too much at this stage about well, why I changed my name, because you can always go back and listen to that episode where I talk about that. But one thing I didn't mention there is actually, I have dreams about my name, and I've had multiple dreams in different ways. And I was having dreams where I was saying, oh, this is my name. No, this is my name. And I was trying to explain it to people. And then I've had dreams where someone would call me the wrong name, and I'd say, oh, no, wait, that's not the right name. And dreams, well, 
they're a causal level phenomenon. So they're a level of the soul. So if your name is coming through in your dreams, as it was for Treya, then, well, that means something. It has a deep significance to it. And these dreams that Treya's had, well, they reveal something about her soul. They reveal something about the progress she's made in accepting, of integrating masculine and feminine, of understanding the making, doing, and knowing and being concepts or approaches to life. So you can ask yourself, does your name fit? Have you had a shift? Can you imagine yourself having a shift which is so dramatic it it warrants a name change? And the other side of this that we should carry with us, the other part of this story, is that Trey's name is comes from the word Estrella. Estre- okay, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but in English we pronounce it Estrella. And that means a star. And there is a deep significance to this that comes up later in this story. And you see why the name suits her perfectly. And it actually fits right in with what happens to her in this story. So without giving too much away... I'll just say, keep that in your back pocket as we move forward. There's probably quite a few things in there by now. But keep it in the toolkit if there's no space in your back pocket. And if you run out of space, well, we can get you a suitcase. So keep collecting things at this stage. There's plenty of room. There's plenty to learn. And that is where we end chapter 13. And that's all I have to say for now.